Uh, we're reading from 2 Corinthians, the first chapter, verse 12. For our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God and more abundantly toward you. If you just keep your Bible open at 1 Corinthians 1. Near the beginning of 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul writes about the comfort of God. In fact, in chapter 1, verse 3, he calls him the God of all comfort. And for a church like the church at Corinth, beset by many problems, God's comfort would be of great value. And Paul wanted these Christians to experience that comfort. Not only for their benefit, but as he says in the text, that they might be able then to comfort others as well. But Paul had some other things that he needed to accomplish in this letter, and one of the things he had to do was to defend himself and his actions due to a change of plans that he had made. He had revealed those plans earlier in the writing of 1 Corinthians. And if you'll turn while keeping your place, turn back to chapter 16 of 1 Corinthians. And then look with me, please, beginning at verse 3. And when I come, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. But if it is fitting that I go also, they will go with me. Now I come to you when I pass through Macedonia, for I am passing through Macedonia. And it may be that I will remain or even spend the winter with you that you may send me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not wish to see you now on the way, but I hope to stay a while with you if the Lord permits. I want you not to forget the last thing that Paul said in verse 7, if the Lord permits. It was necessary for Paul to change those plans. And because he changed his plans and didn't come as he said that he wanted to come, there were some who were criticizing him and saying that he was fickle. That Paul didn't really mean what he said. And when he wrote something, you couldn't really count on it. Paul was compelled to defend himself so that the matter could be cleared up. Now going back to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, I want you to look with me beginning at the verse that Brady read, verse 12, and I could have had him read this, but this is a long reading, and uh, I hope you'll forgive that, but we need to read all of it to be able to understand completely what Paul is saying. Beginning verse 12 of chapter 1. For our boasting is this, 
the testimony of our conscience that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God and more abundantly toward you. For we are not writing any other things to you than what you read or understand. Now I trust you will understand even to the end. As also you have understood us in part, that we are your boast as you are ours in the day of our Lord Jesus. And in this confidence I intended to come to you before that you might have a second benefit to pass by way of you to Macedonia, to come again from Macedonia to you and be helped by you on my way to Judea. Therefore, when I was planning this, did I do it lightly? Or, or the things I plan, do I plan according to the flesh? That with me should be yes, yes, and no, no. But as God is faithful, our word to you was not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me, Silvanus and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him was yes. For all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him amen, and glory to the glory of God through us. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and has, uh, and has anointed us is God, who also has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Moreover, I call God as witness against my soul that to spare you I came no more to Corinth. Not that we have dominion over your faith, but are fellow workers for your joy, for by faith you stand. Some people are confused about those expressions there about yes and no, but essentially what Paul is saying is that I don't say yes when I mean no, I don't say no when I mean yes. And, and he wanted them, obviously, to understand that. I, I think this incident is important enough that it needs to be examined. It needs to be examined for several reasons. First of all, I think it shows the human side of the church. There is more to the church than doctrine. And don't misunderstand what I'm saying, please. Doctrine is important. In fact, correct doctrine is essential to please God. You can't please God by not following correct doctrine. But Christianity is more than a set of beliefs. Christianity involves putting beliefs into practice. And we might call Christianity in some ways living our belief. That's what Christianity is. We live our beliefs. And living our beliefs involves how we deal with others, those both outside the church and those inside the church. This situation also, I think, serves as a model from which we can learn. It's a model that helps us to understand the question, how do we really relate to others? Specifically, what do we do or what do you do when others disappoint you? Or what do you do when you disappoint others? And, and we know that such disappointments can cause strain on our relationship with fellow believers. It's difficult to worship 
and to work with people that we're not getting along with in life. So let's look at this situation for just a few minutes in 2 Corinthians, and let's look at it from three different perspectives. We start with the perspective of Paul, and we will call Paul the offender. And then we'll shift from that to the perspective of some of the Corinthians, and we'll call them the offended. And then we'll turn finally to the perspective of God himself, and we will call him the onlooker. So let's start with Paul, the offender. And I think as we think about what Paul had done and what he writes, there are some observations that we can make. First of all, anyone can be criticized. Anyone. If an inspired apostle of Christ can be criticized, how can anyone hope to be exempt? Here's a man who had God's spirit, who wrote by God's spirit, who worked for God uh, relentlessly, untiringly, and yet he was criticized. In Matthew, the 11th chapter, you have your Bible. Keep your place at 1 Corinthians, but turn to Matthew 11 for just a moment. I want you to hear how Jesus perceived some of the people of his day. Matthew 11, beginning at verse 16. He says, But to what shall I liken this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their companions and saying, We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We mourned to you and you did not lament. Now let me stop there for just a moment. The, the picture Jesus is drawing verbally is this. Here are a group of children in the marketplace and they want to play games. And one group says, we want to play wedding. And the other group doesn't want to. The other group says, we'd rather play funeral. And the wedding group says, that's not what we want to do. And so they could not agree. They would not help each other, even in a game. But Jesus continues, verse 18. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And then Jesus adds this, But wisdom is justified by her children. Just like those petulant children who couldn't cooperate with each other, the critics were saying, Look here at John. He, he's somewhat of a social hermit. He does not live among people. He's out in the wilderness, and he has a strange diet. He must be some kind of weirdo. How about Jesus? Well, he's not like John. He's sociable. He sits with people. He eats with them. He, he mingles among them. And then, of course, they added things that were not true. A glutton, not true. A wine-bibber, not true. But they would... Cast that on Jesus. And so what I'm showing you by reading that is that Jesus was often criticized. He didn't deserve the criticism, but he received them often. And then there's that incident in Matthew 26. A beautiful act in which a woman anointed the head of Jesus with fragrant oil, expensive oil. 
And verse 8 of that same chapter says, the disciples were indignant at what she did. And they asked, why this waste? You recall, of course, that Jesus defended her and said, why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a good work for me. They were worried and, and, and complaining about the wastefulness of taking this ointment and using it on the head of Jesus. Jesus saw it as a beautiful act. And so we know, first of all, anybody can be criticized. Anybody that does anything is going to be criticized by someone. And then we observe also that criticism can be about anything. In, in this particular case, it was Paul changing his plans. But, but they didn't stop there. Because when you get to chapter 10 of 2 Corinthians and verse 10, here's what they would say of Paul. For his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. He's not good looking. <laughs> He doesn't look like a, a stud. And he hasn't got the eloquence of Apollos. He just can't say the things that Apollos can say and other skillful orators. Listen, folks, I knew a preacher, or I know him, still alive. I know a preacher who was criticized for not smiling when he was pushing his retarded son's wheelchair down the aisle for a worship service. Can you imagine? That's really an important criticism, isn't it? You weren't smiling when you were pushing your child's wheelchair. Someone has said long ago, some people are bees and some are buzzards. And as you know, bees and buzzards don't look for the same thing. I have yet in my long life to see a buzzard around a beautiful flower looking for pollen. That's not what buzzards look for. Criticisms are not necessarily valid. This one against Paul wasn't valid. And conclusions in this case and in other cases are not always correct. You think about that Old Testament incident in 1 Samuel when Eli the priest is watching Hannah pray and she is not praying out loud, but her lips are moving as she prays silently. And what does Eli determine? She's drunk. You, you quit being drunk. Obviously, she was pouring her heart out to God in her dejected state for not having a son. Now let me give you a few observations about Paul's defense. First of all, Paul felt in this situation it was appropriate to defend himself. I will say this, and it's been my practice over a number of years as a preacher. Sometimes it's not worth defending yourself. Because the person you may try to defend yourself to doesn't really care whether you've got the answer or not. And so sometimes you don't, but in this particular case, Paul knew that he needed to because he had a clear conscience, verse 12. He says, our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience that we conducted ourselves in sincerity and godly, uh, 
simplicity and godly sincerity. Paul knew he was right. His conscience told him he was right. Now, conscience is that inner guide that approves our actions when we believe we're doing right and accuses us when we believe we're doing wrong. Paul's conscience was not accusing him because he believed he was doing right, and he was. Paul was able to say something that I've always thought would be very difficult for almost any of us to say. In Acts 24 and verse 16, he says, This being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward man and God, or God and man. I I always strive to have a clear conscience. I'm not doing things against my conscience, knowing that I'm doing wrong. And Paul knew he was sincere in what he had done. You see, the problem was that these people misunderstood. They didn't understand why Paul had not come back. And I'll get to more of that in a moment. But notice in verse 23 says, Moreover, I call God as witness against my soul that to spare you, I came no more to Corinth. Paul had actually changed his plans for their benefit. He had given them time to repent because they needed to repent. And Paul knew that God understood. Happy is that person who knows that even if no one else understands, God does. And being right with God is always, listen to me, being right with God is always more important than being approved by humans. That's most important. Be right with God. If you're not right with somebody else, but you're right with God, then let them deal with that. Now let's turn to the Corinthians, at least some of them, the offended. We don't know how many there were who were offended by Paul's change of plans. But we can make some observations about the charge that some of them did make. And the the first would be this. Did the charge, that is Paul being fickle, fit the crime? We can call it that. Paul's change of plans. Hardly. Changing one's mind in matters of indifference is not sin. Paul coming back to Corinth was a plan that he would have liked to have carried out, but it wasn't anything set in stone. It wasn't a command of God. It wasn't a matter of right and wrong. It was a matter of indifference. And it certainly was not an an indication of poor character on Paul's part. You see, the Corinthians who accused him did not have all the facts. And that's often the case. Critics often criticize without really knowing everything about the situation. And these people had not asked Paul, why did you not come back? Which would have been appropriate. We were expecting you to come. Why didn't you come? They simply accused him. And that's often the critics' approach. Don't ask. Don't try to get to the heart of it. Just go ahead and accuse. Now here's some observations about the attitude of those who were accusing Paul. Did they follow God's plan for dealing with problems? You see, the Lord gave specific instructions about how to handle problems if you feel like 
your brother has sinned against you. I don't know hardly how any of these Corinthians could say Paul had sinned against them, but they're accusing him of being fickle, and maybe they are saying Paul really is a sinner because he doesn't really mean what he says. Here's what Jesus said in Matthew 18, verse 15. We need to mark it down. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. Did they follow that? Absolutely not. Did they follow the teaching that they had received in the first letter? 1 Corinthians 13 verse 7. Love believes all things. Moffat's uh, translation is good there when it says, always eager to believe the best. When we love others, and especially our brothers and sisters in Christ, we're not eager to believe the worst, we're eager to believe the best. And if we can't justify believing the best, that's one thing, but that's where we start. We believe the best. Did they remember the Lord's words in Matthew 7 and verse 12? Jesus said, Therefore, Whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. We call that the golden rule. If you want others to criticize you, go ahead and criticize them. But you don't want them to criticize you, so you don't criticize them. And again, we ask, could they have asked Paul rather than just accused Paul? Certainly. I find it interesting that if you read the first chapter carefully, you read in verse 8 about a struggle that Paul was going through himself. Here's how it goes. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. Were they thinking about the possibility that Paul might have had some personal problems and struggles himself? Or were they only concerned about themselves? There's one more party in this situation. That's God. He's always a party in these situations. He is the onlooker. And how do you think God felt about this situation as he viewed it? Here is Paul, his apostle, having to consume his energy, defending himself against a silly charge. And here are some of the Corinthians more concerned about their feelings than other matters of even greater importance. Remember, if you will, that these are the same people who were compelled to to discipline a flagrant sexual violator in their midst. They had to be compelled to practice discipline against someone who was openly sexually immoral. And then, in the second letter, which follows this particular situation, Paul will have to compel them or urge them to take the brother back even though he had repented and they had not done. 
How fortunate for them that God is patient. God is thoroughly warned about the behavior that these people were showing. Again, the words of Jesus, this time Matthew 7 and verse 2. And with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with what measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Paul would write in Galatians 6 verse 7. Do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. If that's the kind of life you want to live, an accusatory life, then that's what you're going to get back. Someone has said the mud thrower will always have dirty hands. And someday, all of us will stand before God. And Jesus said in Matthew 12, verses 36 and 37, I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. And then we're soon to study in our Sunday morning classes, James 2.13, when James writes, For judgment is without mercy, To the one who has shown no mercy, mercy triumphs over judgment. I hope you understand that this is not just a lesson about what happened between Paul and the Corinthians long ago. It is that, but it's more than that. It applies to us as well. And I'm not being an accuser tonight, and I'm not suggesting that there is any particular person who needs to hear this, but I do believe that all of us need to hear it. We need to live like Paul with a clear conscience, number one. But we need to be careful in our condemnation of others. We need to be sure that that we're not like the Corinthians, that we don't really have the whole story, that we're not dealing fairly with others, And if we commit those errors, we're the ones who suffer most. Tonight we sing this invitation song to you, for for you if you need it, if you're not right with God, to make this the opportunity to be right. Someday, we mentioned, we'll all stand before the judgment seat of God. We want to be right with Him. And that means being in Christ being baptized into Him for the remission of our sins, and living faithfully for Him. If that's not the case for you tonight, let us help you while we stand and sing.